Psalm chapter 42, we'll take up the second book of the Psalms this evening, but first let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we thank you so much for any opportunity we have to come and to study your word. We pray tonight you'll speak to our hearts, Lord, as we go through your book. It's an amazing book. We know it's from you, Lord, for many reasons, but especially because it speaks so directly to our hearts. Do that again tonight, Lord. We want to hear from you. Just encourage us, comfort us, challenge us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Arthur Harold Fickett has this to say about the Psalms. The Psalms tutor my soul in my love for God. You see, to rightly understand the Psalms, the book needs to be viewed not as a treatise on theology, but as a diary of relationship. Genesis through Esther records the history of the Hebrew people, the steps of their feet, the work of their hands. But it's the Psalms that describe the beat of their heart. It's a journal of devotion. Philip Yancey writes, more than any other book in the Bible, Psalm reveals what a heartfelt, soul-starved, single-minded relationship with God looks like. You see, the Psalms are prayers and reflections and even complaints from men who dearly loved God while struggling with the realities of life. Remember Arthur Ron Allen's seven-word theme for the book of Psalms. Remember it throughout. Here it is in a nutshell, 150 chapters in seven words. Life is hard, but God is good. <laughs> Just a technical note about the authorship of the Psalms before we get rolling tonight. Most of the Psalms, at least 73, were written by King David. 27 were written by other authors. And 50 Psalms are anonymous. We call them orphan Psalms. Tradition says that Ezra the priest compiled the Psalms in their present form. And tonight we're going to tackle the second of the five divisions Psalms 42 to 72. In the preface to Psalm 42, we find evidence of God's amazing grace. This psalm is labeled a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Now, you remember the infamous Korah. He was the rebel who led the revolt in the wilderness against Moses and Aaron. Number 16, verse 32, describes how God put down that coup d'etat. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Wow. Apparently, even earthquakes have an appetite for sour tastes. And they swallowed up Korah and his colleagues. Everyone, that is, except the sons of Korah. Korah died. His colleagues died. Their families died. The only family that didn't die were the sons of Korah. Isn't that interesting? And why their offspring were preserved, we really don't know. But what we do know was their reaction to their deliverance. They developed a profound appreciation for the mercy and the love and the grace of God. They had been saved so much, they became the champions of God's praise. And here we find the sons of Korah responsible for playing a key role in the temple worship. Nine psalms are tied to Korah's kids. And it's ironic to me that some of the most spiritual psalms were written by the sons of one of the Bible's most blatant blasphemers. 
Verse 1 begins, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. On occasion, my kids will forget to leave the dog her water. And our furry friend will spend all day with no means to quench her thirst. And it's always fun to watch her eagerness when we finally deliver to her that sloshing bowl full of water. Hey, a parched pooch doesn't take a measured sip or two. She just vigorously starts lapping and gulping up that water. The psalmist says this is how he longs for God. As a deer pines for the brook, as a thirsty dog craves a bowl of water, his soul thirsts for the living God. You see, every human has a craving for God. There's a deep down longing in every person. The God-shaped void exists in all of us. As one author put it, I used to say there is a God-shaped hole in me. For a long time, I stressed the absence, the hole. Now I find it is the shape which has become more important. He's realized that it's only God who can satisfy him. The psalmist looked and tasted and discovered that only God can satiate his thirst. Man is content. Man is satisfied and fulfilled with nothing less than a relationship with the God who created him. In the Old Testament, God's glory was found in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is why the psalmist says in verse 2, When shall I come and appear before God? In other words, he's been on the road. He's been out in Lebanon. He's been in the Jordan Valley, as you'll read. And he remembers what it's like to be surrounded there in the temple, surrounded with God's mercies and with God's majesty. And he longs again for that rich fellowship. In verse 7, he says, Deep calls unto deep. Of course, in New Testament times, we no longer have to come to the temple to experience God. You remember, Paul said, we are the temple. God abides in us at all times and in all places, wherever we go, he's with us. But here's the question. Do you have the same passion as the psalmist? Is your desire for God to be aware and surrounded by his majesty as desperate and as deep as it was for David? It should be. Psalm 43 is a continuation of Psalm 42. And it indicates the psalmist's enemies are the reason he can't come to the temple. They've blocked his access. It could be that this was written during a time when David was a fugitive, when he was on the run from Saul, waiting on God to restore him. David does cry out in verse 3. He asks God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Psalm 44 through 49 are psalms all linked to the sons of Korah. And by the way, I think that would make a great name for a Christian rock and roll band. The sons of Korah. It's got a little catchy thing to it, doesn't it? The sons of Korah. So next time you guys try to put a little group together, you could call yourselves the sons of Korah. Randy, that'd be a good name for your, your little group. The sons of Korah. Then everybody would think they were, <laughs> you were Korah maybe, but. The psalmist recounts in verses 1 and 2 Israel's past victories. And he's quick to give credit where credit is due. Look in verse 3. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance. 
You know, over time, we tend to forget God's intervention in our battles. We assume the credit for ourselves. God, forgive our selective amnesia. God alone deserves the credit. The psalmist, though, admits that God alone is responsible for Israel's success. And he knows that in the long run, God is the one who will continue to lead them to new victories. In verse 5, he predicts, through you we will push down our enemies. He says again in verse 8, in God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. But for the moment, there is no victory in sight. The situation looks grim and bleak for the psalmist. Some commentators believe that Psalm 44 was written during the days of King Hezekiah. When Judah was invaded by the Assyrian army, what made that predicament so puzzling was that it had just preceded a great revival. And the psalmist points out in verse 17, But we have not forgotten you. Nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. So why are we being invaded? Why has this trouble come? See, he's saying if we had sinned, then we could interpret this invasion as a judgment. But the enemy showed up after we had turned to God. What's the deal here? You know, I hear that same complaint from folks today. Man, when I got saved, rather than life getting easier, it got harder. I was persecuted. I was rejected. After I got saved, the Lord began to put me through trials and testings and began to clean up my life. Things haven't gotten easier. They've gotten harder. Listen, when you're on the devil's side, why would he waste his time attacking you in the first place? It's only after you're saved that you become a threat. In verse 25 and 26, the psalmist cries out, For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sakes. Here's why God allows opposition in a believer's life. It's because it serves two purposes. Notice here, it reminds us of our helplessness. He says, our soul is bowed down to the dust. We're hopeless without you, Lord. That's a good reminder. And then second, battle, struggles, drive us to God for help. And here at the end of the psalm, he turns to the Lord. We may not recognize it at the time, but ultimately battles are blessings in disguise. Psalm 45 is called a song of love. It's a wedding song that celebrates a royal marriage. Different possibilities have been offered as to the subject of the psalm. Maybe Solomon and the Shulamite, perhaps Hezekiah and Hephzibah, the daughter of Isaiah. Figuratively, though, the marriage envisioned in Psalm 45 is the romance between God and his people. In essence, the relationship between Christ and his church. Verses 1 through 9 focus on the king. Verses 10 through 17 spotlight his bride. The high point of the psalm is in verses 10 and 11. For here the bride is told how to prepare her heart for intimacy with the king. And this is how we should ready ourselves for worship. This is how we can deepen our walk with God and our awareness of his presence in our lives. Here are four words you need to write down. Listen, consider, incline, and forget. She's told, listen, 
O daughter. In other words, cease your squirming. Avoid the distractions. Corral your wandering thoughts and become attentive. When it comes to spending time with God, I am always amazed at how easily I'm distracted. John Donne once wrote, I neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly or for the rattling of a coach or for the winning of a door. Isn't it amazing how easily we're distracted when it comes time to pray? Now, hey, we're watching a football game and the wife can come through and vacuum, you know, the area right between us and the television. We don't even know she's there. She can call us for dinner. Friends can come over, but we're fixated on that football game. But when it comes time to pray, man, just a little noise in the house or the garbage man circling the cul-de-sac, you know, it, it distracts us. We need to listen. We need to tune in. But then he says, consider. Avoid the distractions, but then lock in on God. Fix a gaze upon the king. Direct a focus upon the Lord. Begin to fill your mind with the truth of God. When you pray, always take your Bible. So you can begin to fill your mind with God's truth. Third, he says, incline your ear. Literally stretch out. In other words, pull as near to God as possible. It reminds me of a teenage girl who sits on the console of the car just to be close to her boyfriend. You know, she's pulled close. And we need to pull close to God, stretch out for Him. And then the fourth word is forget. He says, forget your own people. The bride won't fully give herself to her husband if she's still focused on mom and dad and the life that she's left behind. And the same is true in our relationship with God. If we're fixated on the past, past sins, or past problems, we can't move on with God. This is why Paul says to the Philippians, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need to let go of the past and look forward to the future that God has for us. When you spend time with God, listen. Consider, incline, and forget. The preface of Psalm 46 is called a song of Alamoth. Alamoth is a difficult word to translate, but it probably means high-pitched. And this song may have been for the sopranos, for the sisters in the choir. Commentators tend to agree that Psalms 46 through 48 were written at the time when the Assyrian assault was being waged against Jerusalem. Remember, Assyria was a rising empire bent on world conquest. Assyria had overthrown Syria and had overthrown Israel to the north and were headed to Egypt. And the only thing that separated Assyria and the ultimate conquest of the Nile was the city of Jerusalem. And this Jewish king by the name of Hezekiah. And when Hezekiah looked over the walls of Jerusalem and he saw 185,000 of the meanest, baddest troops on the planet camped against him, it frightened him. There was nowhere to turn. All he could do was pray. And you remember what happened. God sent an angel in the night who that sole angel slaughtered 185,000 of the Assyrian troops. 
slaughtered the army overnight. It was amazing. The next morning, Hezekiah peered over the wall and he surveyed the carnage. And it prompted him to take up his pen and document God's deliverance. And that's what we have in Psalm 46. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Hebrew word translated trouble means a tight spot. (laughs) Tonight, you may be in a tight spot, but God can deliver. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Hezekiah looks over the battlefield. And he says of Jerusalem in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God's presence had made the difference. The psalm closes in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. You see, Hezekiah did nothing. He never raised a finger. All he did was sit still while God did the work. Guys, often our activity just gets in God's way. We need to learn to sit still and trust the Lord until He tells us to move. So often when we get into that tight spot, our urge is to grab the bull by the horns, take control of the situation, take matters into your own hands. But so often we need to wait. We need to trust. We need to be still and let God be God. He is able to deliver. Psalm 47 is probably a sequel to Psalm 46. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. And five times in this psalm, we're commanded to sing praises to God. God has two cities. His earthly capital is Jerusalem. His spiritual capital is the new Jerusalem, or what we call heaven. And Psalm 48 has both cities in view. Verse 2 describes Jerusalem as beautiful in elevation. And if you know your geography, Jerusalem was built on five hills. It is a, it's situated, it's elevated above the valley surrounding it. It's also called the joy of the whole earth. That was certainly true in Old Testament times when the people came up to Jerusalem to enter the temple and there worship God and make sacrifice. But it's true even today. It is the joy of all the earth. God's plan, past and future, is so intricately linked to Jerusalem that it makes it a very special and holy city. Of course, the Assyrian general, Sennacherib, he was not intimidated by the holiness of the city or by the height of its walls. He camped against Jerusalem. What Sennacherib didn't know was who camped within Jerusalem. And verse 3 tells us, God is in her places. He is known as her refuge. And God was the one who defended the city. Psalm 49 deals with the question, why do the wicked prosper? But here's how the psalmist attacks that question. He first of all defines true prosperity. Notice verse 7 says, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it certainly is. What has the redemption of our soul cost us? It's cost us nothing, but it has cost God everything. It cost God, His only begotten Son. The psalmist here is pointing out that all the money on earth, 
The wicked are prospering, but big deal. So what? They've got money. All the money on earth can't buy your way out of hell. It can't purchase you a ticket to heaven. So what? They're prospering. Only God has the power to redeem a soul. Verse 15 says, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. And that's where the psalmist has put his trust. His trust is in God. He tells us in verses 16 and 17, Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Don't get bent out of shape when you see the wicked man prosper. So he has it for a little while now. He he won't be able to take it with him when he dies. In all my years, I have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Money is a commodity that's exchanged on earth, but it's worthless in the hereafter. You and I have the opportunity to be laying up treasure in heaven. That's where richness counts. Psalm 50 is a psalm of Asaph, who was one of David's three chief musicians. In all, 12 psalms are attributed to Asaph. The other 11, interestingly enough, are in sequence. Psalms uh, 73 through 83 are all attributed to Asaph. Psalm 50 is prophetic. It looks to the return of the Messiah at the end of the age, and it outlines for us two groups and the criteria by which they'll be judged when the Lord returns. Verse 1 through 15 speaks to God's people Israel, while verses 16 through 23 focus on the wicked world at large. Now, God's message to Israel in this psalm straightens out a misconception. Over the course of Hebrew history, the nation had slaughtered millions and millions of animals. It was all in their sacrificial service. A river of blood literally flowed from the brazen altar. But God didn't order the sacrifices just because he wanted sacrifice, just because he liked the smell of barbecue. The whole bloody affair was a lesson. It taught the people that the wages of sin is death, that a life had to be taken for man to be forgiven. And thus those sacrifices were required year in and year out. This is why when Jesus died upon the cross, shortly thereafter, the temple was destroyed. The sacrificial system ended because it was no longer needed. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that all the other sacrifices had served to illustrate. The point of the sacrifice was not the sacrifice itself, but what it represented. And this is true with every sacrifice. In verse 10, God says, why would he want a bull or goat when... Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, I hope you don't give an offering to God because you think he needs the money. He doesn't need your money. You're misguided if you serve him because you think he can't get the job done without you. Don't be foolish. When you offer God a sacrifice, it's not because he needs your giving or he needs the sacrifice. It's because you need to give. A sacrifice reveals a right attitude on our part. It's a means that we have to express our love and devotion to God. 
We make a statement to God when we give to Him our money or our time or our talent or our praise or our service. We're telling God that we love Him. We're telling Him that we appreciate Him. And this is why the psalmist cries out in verse 14, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon Him in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Our sacrifices show God how grateful we are that we trust Him. Psalm 51 is entitled, A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David thought he had this whole sordid affair swept under the rug. Yes, it had cost an innocent man his life. He had ordered Uriah's death. Yes, a godly king had sacrificed his integrity. But in David's mind, the painful chapter was finally over. His sin with Bathsheba was forgotten. He brushed it under the carpet. Or so he thought. It was a year after David's adultery with Bathsheba that Nathan paid him a visit. You remember the story? He came in, he told the story, and then he pointed that long bony finger at David and he said, you are the man. David had hid his sin from a lot of people, but he had not hid his sin from God. Guys, when we sin, we have two choices. We can confess or we can conceal. Confess your sin. Repent of it. Come clean. Be humble. And God will forgive. But conceal your sin behind a wall of pride. And God will make sure it gets revealed. And often, in a time and place that you would prefer that it didn't come up, eventually the truth will come out. It'll come out anyway, so it's always best to go ahead and confess. Psalm 51 is a classic. It's a passionate prayer of repentance. David begins pleading for mercy and asking God, blot out my transgressions. In other words, erase it from my record, God. Wash me, cleanse me. My sin is ever before me. You see, David had swept his sin under a rug, but not a moment went by that it didn't torment his own conscience. This sin was a burr in his saddle. It was a pebble in his shoe. It was no peace trying to cover up this sin. You see, rather than sweep it under a rug, he needed for God to blot it out. That was the only answer. Notice David says to God in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned. Now wait a minute, David. David, you've sinned against Bathsheba. You've sinned against your own wives and children. You've sinned against Uriah. You've sinned against the nation. What do you mean against God and God alone have I sinned? But you see... David realizes that first and foremost, his sin has been an offense to God. You see, this is why there is no such thing as a harmless sin. Oh, well, I haven't hurt anyone. Wait a minute, you've hurt God. Every sin breaks God's heart. You know, the worst thing about sin is not that it breaks God's law. It's that it breaks God's heart. In verse 5, David admits it's his nature to sin, as it is for all people, by the way. It's not just that we sometimes miss the mark. It's that our aim is flawed. 
None of us are straight shooters anymore. We've sinned. Our nature has been deviated and contaminated. In verse 7, David cries out, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The word wash here refers to a woman who took her garments down to the river and beat the dirt out on the rocks. David is giving God permission to beat the evil out of him if necessary. Do whatever it takes, God, to cleanse me and to purify me. He asks in verse 10, Created me a clean heart, O God. You see, man's spirit is too stained to be cleansed. That's why David just asks for a new heart. He doesn't say, clean up my old heart. Give me a new heart. He wants God to cut out that old sinful, rebellious nature and plant within him a new nature. See, we need a heart that's soft and compliant, not a heart that's hard and rebellious. We, too, need for God to create in us a clean heart. And guys, the good news is that God specializes in heart transplants. If a burnt offering had been able to cleanse David, he would have offered a million bulls and goats. But it took more. We're told here that God wanted a broken and a contrite heart. And David's confession expresses just such a heart. And in response to David's brokenness, God's generous spirit restored to him the joy of his salvation. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, there was a man by the name of Doeg who ratted on David. He raced to Saul and he told the king that he had seen David in the town of Nob with Ahimelech the priest. Saul was so outraged that he took Ahimelech and he ordered his execution along with the other priests there in Nob. In fact, Doeg himself was the one who drew the sword and slaughtered 85 priests. And when news of all this reached David, he wrote Psalm 52. He describes Doeg in verse 2. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Man, be careful of the tongue. It will cut. It will kill. Here's a riddle. See if you can identify this person. I am more deadly than the screaming shell of a gun. I win without killing. I break hearts and wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive. My name? Gossip. Man, the tongue is deadly. Beware. The psalm finishes by forecasting forecasting Doeg's demise and David's deliverance. Reminds me of the man who lived to be a hundred years old. And a reporter asked him, he said, what's your greatest accomplishment? And the old man answered, well, I've lived a hundred years and I don't have an enemy in the world. He then added, I've outlived them all. And in Psalm 52, David is saying that God will see to it that he outlives Doeg. Some popular songs are successfully re-released. And the second edition of the song does very well, as well as the original. And such was Psalm 53. It is nearly identical to a previous psalm 
Psalm 14. Psalm 53 carries a footnote lacking with Psalm 14. It says, set to Mahalath, which means melancholy. And perhaps it was the same lyrics, but it was set to a more melancholy tune. Psalm 54 is a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? You see, like Doeg, the Ziphites ratted on David. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapters 23 and 26. On two occasions, their leads helped Saul almost trap David. And David cries out, Save me, O God, for strangers have risen up against me. You see, David had never harmed the Ziphites. Why were they ratting on him? What did they have against him? Psalm 54 closes confidently. David is assured that he'll be delivered, for God is my helper, he says. He will repay my enemies. Now, you see, in Psalm 54, David is sold out by strangers. But that's an easy sort of trial to handle. You expect as much from your enemies. So what if your enemies do you harm? I mean, that's what enemies do. You're expecting that. But in Psalm 55, David has a deeper wound that needs to be healed. For here he is being betrayed by a friend, by a buddy. You see, the old saying is true. Against a foe I can defend, but heaven protect me from a disloyal friend. Those are the deepest wounds, those that are inflicted by brothers or sisters. David says in verse 12 of Psalm 55, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. We walked to the house of God in his throng. Ahithophel was David's close friend. They were bosom buddies. They even worshipped the Lord together. They walked up to the temple together. They hung out together. They spent time together. But their friendship ran aground when David tore apart Ahithophel's family. For you see, Ahithophel had a granddaughter whose name was Bathsheba. And Ahithophel could never let go of that bitterness that he felt toward David for violating his granddaughter and destroying her family. And he ended up turning on the king. And he joined with the king's son Absalom in Absalom's revolt. And it crushed David to have his best friend turn into an avowed enemy. And in Psalm 55, he sorts out his feelings. And in verse 22, it says, He casts his burden on the Lord. And if you've been betrayed by a friend, that's really what you need to do. You need to take it to the Lord. Because you see, He understands what it means to be betrayed by friends. Jesus has been right there where you're at. And if you cast your burden upon the Lord, He'll help you bear it. Psalm 56 is set to a particular tune, The Silent Dove in Distant Lands. Now, I have no idea what the silent dove in distant lands sounded like. But it's got to be a country song. The silent dove in distant lands. 
It's got to be country. The psalm is also labeled a victim of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. You remember David thought that his enemies would give him exile, but instead they took him as prisoner. And he escaped Gath by frothing at the mouth and feigning that he was insane. And they said, man, we've got enough nuts around here. Get him out of here. And they sent him on. But he writes this psalm, Psalm 56, to praise God for his deliverance. And I love verse 8 of the psalm. It says, you number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Here's a good trivia question. Here's the first example in history of bottled water. God loves you so much. He so much cares when you hurt. That he takes each one of your tears and he collects it and gathers it up and puts it in a bottle. He keeps our tears in a bottle for some of us in an 80-gallon drum. One day, his joy will compensate us for all the tears that we have shed. He might just turn our tears into a sweet elixir. Psalm 57 is a victim of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. And you remember this story. David was hiding from Saul in the very cave that Saul chose to use as his Jiffy Johnny. The king came in out of the sunlight into this pitch black cave and he couldn't see David's men all back in the shadows. And when Saul squatted down to do his business, David could have slipped up and killed him, but instead he took his sword and he just cut off the just a little edge of Saul's garment. Psalm 57 describes what went on in David's heart at the time. And I love the note in the preface. The psalm is set to the tune, Do not destroy. How appropriate. For David chose not to destroy the king's anointed, but to honor Saul in his position, even though it meant that David would have to be patient years longer. In verse 2, David trusts God to fight for him. And to exalt him in due time, he says, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. David describes what happened in that cave in verse 6. He says, they have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me into the midst of it. They themselves have fallen. In other words, Saul had come seeking David, but it was Saul who fell into his own trap. The last five verses of Psalm 57 are an explosion, an eruption really of praise. David says in verse 7, my heart is steadfast. I like how the old King James phrases it. It says, my heart is fixed. And I think of a fighter pilot who locks onto his target. You know, hits that button and the laser just locks on. And David says that that's what I've done with God. I've locked on. Nothing will move me. Nothing will dissuade me. His goal now is to glorify God. Are you locked on tonight? Have you locked on to Jesus Christ? Verse Psalm 58 and 59 have different lyrics, but they're set to the same tune as was Psalm 57. Verse 1 of Psalm 58 says, 
Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? And Psalm 58 is an expose on the corruption in Israel's court system at the time of David. You see, the Hebrew judges at the time were on the take. They played favorites. Decisions were made not based on right and wrong, but on who they knew and how much money was spent. In other words, crooks were sitting on the benches in the courts. How many of the courts in America today are no better than those in ancient Israel? Psalm 58 is what we call an imprecatory prayer. Imprecate means to curse. And in these imprecatory prayers, God uses David to call down judgment on his evil enemies. And this is one of those imprecatory psalms. In fact, this is one of the most vicious. Look at verse 6. Look at what David prays. He says, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. (laughs) That's, That's vicious, man. Bust their chops. Again, he says in verse 8, Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. Man, you don't want to be David's enemy. Have you ever poured salt onto a snail and watch it just kind of disintegrate? Try that tonight. David has that in mind for his enemies, you see. (laughs) If you question whether David should pray such a prayer, remember that his enemies were God's enemies. And all of God's judgments are just and right. You know, I would say that David isn't really judging these people at all. He's just confirming the judgment that God has already placed upon them. I like what Graham Scroggie says, If it is right for God to destroy, it cannot be wrong for his servants to rejoice in what he does. I agree with that. God is serious about sin. He is angry with the wicked. His righteous, his judgments will be righteous. And I don't think it's wrong for us to uphold God's righteousness and his justice. Verse 11 reminds us that one day God, the judge, will judge the judges. Psalm 59 is a victim of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. You remember this story. Saul was so jealous of David that he sent hit men to his house to arrest him. They waited until daybreak to storm the house. But during the night, with David's wife, Michael's help, he escaped. But before he did, he wrote this psalm. While these men were outside, he wrote Psalm 59. In verse 2, he cries, Save me from these bloodthirsty men. For look, they lay in wait for my life. David, though, is trusted in God. And he sums up his faith in verse 17. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, the God of my mercy. We're also given the context for Psalm 60. We're told when David fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, 
And Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The narrative for this is back in 2 Samuel chapter 8. You see, David has become king now. And in the early stages of his reign, he is gobbling up his surrounding enemies. God has made him successful. Twice in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we're told, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. In other words, the Davidic blitzkrieg was on. But what 2 Samuel chapter 8 does not tell us that we do learn from Psalm 60 is that David's victories were all won through prayer. Read this psalm and you'll see how important prayer was in the prevailing of David's armies. You see, like the church, David's army did a lot of its fighting on its knees. And 2 Samuel shows David's outer life, his military triumphs. But Psalm 60 reveals his inward life, his broken spirit, his repentant attitude, his faith in God. You know, sometimes... We get so wrapped up in the outer life of great men. We want to emulate their exploits in their outer life. We forget that the inward life comes first. We don't see what makes those men great. That there's a devotion, that there's a prayer life, that there's a love for God underneath the things we see them doing. Don't just emulate the outer life. Cultivate the inward life as well. Psalm 61 was written by David and played, we're told, on a stringed instrument. The Hebrew word here is singular rather than plural. And the implication is that this song was more geared for a solo instrument than for a band. And it was more for private worship than for public worship. More intended for contemplation, really, than for celebration. We love verse 2. We sang it tonight. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Hey, there's safety in the rock. It's high. There's perspective from the rock. There is rest in the rock. There is stability on the rock. And guess who the rock is? Jesus is the rock. Who is higher than I. Man, I need a rock. I need an anchor. We need a strength that is greater than ourselves. If you only have your own resources from which to draw, how quickly you'll become depleted. We need someone greater than ourselves. And so we look to the rock who is higher than we are. His name is Jesus. Psalm 62 was written by David and given to Jeduthun. With Asaph and Heman, Jeduthun was one of David's three chief musicians in charge of the temple worship. Psalm 61 began with a shout. Psalm 62 begins with silence, which reminds me of the woman who fell in love with this man, got married, then three months into their life together, discovered from her marriage counselor that she had married a mute Apparently, up until that point, she'd done all the talking and had never stopped to listen. She just didn't know he couldn't talk until three months into the marriage. Now, hey, we can make the same mistake 
in our relationship with God. We talk, 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 but do we listen? Do we grow quiet? Do we hear what God has to say, what our husband has to say? Let's not be like that bride who does all the talking and no listening. Verse 1 says, Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock. I love that. The psalmist trusts in God alone. Lloyd Ogilvy writes, Those who trust in God alone have Him and everything else. Those who trust in Him and anything else end up without Him and nothing else. To trust in God plus something or someone else is not to really trust God at all. You're suggesting that God needs help, that He can't do it on His own. Hey, real faith realizes that God is all we need. In verse 3, David calls his enemies a leaning wall and a tottering fence. In other words, lean on them and they'll let you down. They'll disappoint you. They can't be trusted. Even well-meaning friends are sometimes like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. Don't put your trust in man. Put your trust in God. He has more great advice in verse 10. He says, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God may truly bless you. This week, you may go in tomorrow and unexpectedly just get a massive raise. Who knows? If riches increase, that's great. But just don't set your heart on them. Don't get caught up in them. Both mortal men and material riches will let you down. Don't put your trust in them. Look at what David trusts in, verse 5. He says, my expectation is from him. It's from God. So much of our discontent stems from our own selfish expectations. You know, we dream up what we think God owes us or what we're expecting out of God. And then when God doesn't do what we expect, then we get disappointed at God. Wait a minute. If you're a parent, you know that feeling. You know, your kids think they know what that you should do for them, and then when you don't do it, they get mad at you. Well, you promised. Well, no, I didn't promise. When will we admit that God knows what's best? We need to come to Him with a blank slate. We need to just come to God with no other expectations but what He might lay on our heart. God, You mold, You shape my expectations, my desires, my plans, my dreams. Lord, my expectation is from You. That needs to be our prayer. The Hebrew word expectation literally means a twisted cord. And I think of a string that's attached to the finger on one end, and the yo-yo on the other end. I see David as a yo-yo attached to God's finger. When God sends him down, he goes down. When God makes him hesitate on the end of the string, he hesitates on the end of the string. He waits. When God wants him to go round the world, David goes round the world. David is ready for whatever God wants because his expectation is from God. He has no other expectations out of life but to follow God, 
Man, how life would be so much simpler if we could reduce ourselves to that kind of simplicity where our only expectation was whatever God desired for us. Psalm 63 is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He begins, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. The Judean wilderness reaches temperatures as high as 120 degrees. And there is no shade. Spiritually, though, David can just as easily be talking about the world that we live in. This world is a desert. It's parched. It's dry. And the soul of man thirsts and longs for God. Nothing else will satisfy. Man can live about 40 days without food. Man can live about three days without water. Man can live eight minutes without air. But David is saying, I can't live one second without God. I need Him. I long for Him. David says, I want to see His power and His glory. Notice what he says in verse 3. Your loving kindness is better than life. Take all that life can offer. Every carnal thrill. Every legitimate pleasure. Every fame and fortune. Roll it all together and it can't hold a candle to one drink of God's goodness. Psalm 63 teaches us that David longs for God on both ends of the day. Verse 1 says, early will I seek you. Verse 6 says, I meditate on you in the night watches. You know, I can't get enough of God, he's saying. I love what he says in verse 8, my soul follows close. Does your soul follow close? Psalm 64 is called simply a psalm of David, but it could be entitled, A Sharp Tongue Gets a Split Lip. God judges those who have slandered David. He describes the culprits in verse 3, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows bitter words. Look, though, at how God retaliates in verse 7. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. In other words, God will come to David's defense and God will punish David's accusers. A.B. Simpson once wrote, I would rather play with forked lightning or take in my hands live wires with their fiery current than to speak a reckless word against any servant of Christ. God defended David. And God will defend any of his servants from slanderous attacks. The Bible refers to a seven-year period just before the second coming of Jesus as the Great Tribulation. And three things will happen in the Great Tribulation. God will punish the wicked. God will purify the nation Israel. And God will party with his church in heaven. And I'm going to be part of that party. But at the end of those seven years, Jesus will return to earth. He'll restore it to its original beauty. The desert will flower like a rose. The lamb will lie down with the lion. The curse of Genesis 3 will be lifted. Jesus will rule the nations and usher in an age of peace. And the next four Psalms, 
Psalms 65 through 68 are prophetic of that kingdom age. Psalm 65 portrays God as the confidence of all the earth. He governs nature. He controls the rains. He multiplies the flocks and increases the grain. Psalm 66 begins with a shout. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. And the psalm doesn't stop with shouting. Verse 2 declares, make his praise glorious. That means that Jim Greer can start tinkling them ivories back here, baby. That Jonathan can get down on that guitar. That we shouldn't just praise the Lord, but we need to make his praise glorious. Jazz it up, man. Juice it up. God deserves our best efforts when it comes to praising him and worshiping him. Musicians should strive for excellence in their music service. Worshippers should come with our very best with a clear mind, with an undivided heart, with an enthusiastic attitude. On Saturday night, we should be thinking, I've got to get up and go to church and worship God tomorrow. I need a clear mind. I need to get to bed early tonight. We need to give God our best. Verse 8 calls for all the earth to make the voice of His praise to be heard. The rest of the psalm praises God for refining Israel. All the fiery childs she's endured have served to melt and mold and make Israel the people that God has desired. This is the effect that the great tribulation will have on the Hebrew people. Verse 18 is a provocative verse. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, it's not that God refuses to accept our prayers if there's sin in our life. Because if that were the case, then we all should just forget about praying altogether. Because none of us are perfect. I think the psalmist is talking here about deliberate rebellion. The lack of humility, the lack of honesty that's brazen and blatant. That I'm going to rebel and I don't care what anyone thinks, heaven or earth. That kind of dishonesty, that kind of lack of integrity, that causes crackling, that causes static on your line with God. He's saying, if you're harboring that in your heart, God's not going to hear your prayer. There's going to be static on the line. God only listens to a repentant heart. Let all the peoples praise you is the theme of Psalm 67. Psalm 68 begins... Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. You see, today is the day of man. Rebellious man is having his say on the planet. But the day will come when God will arise. We call it the day of the Lord. Jesus will return. He'll take control of all those things that belong to him. A new day will dawn. And Psalm 68 describes the Lord's takeover of the planet. Two verses sum up the chapter. Verses 19 and 21. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. But God will wound the head of his enemies. Blessings on God's people, curses on his enemies. Verses 24 through 27 envisions the procession that will bring Jesus into the temple. From the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, Jesus will reign over all the earth. 
Psalm 69 is a psalm of David, and it's divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 21 focuses on the victim. Verses 22 through 28 on the vengeance. And verses 29 through 36 on the victory. And it's interesting, Psalm 69 is also prophetic of Jesus. You see, at times David's thoughts transcend his own situation. And he begins to think of the son of David, the Messiah. Ultimately, Jesus will be the victim hanging on the cross. When he returns, he'll take vengeance and he'll achieve victory. In verse 1, David is drowning in trouble. We're told waters have come up to my neck, he says. I mean, he's drowning in sorrow. And he's not handling it very well. He admits to crying so much that he's become exhausted. Now remember, this is the champion of Israel and he's weeping like a baby. Make no mistake about it. David has become depressed. He's sitting in sackcloth. He's tried to punish himself by doing without food. He's just become so frail that his own parents no longer recognize him. David has become the object of ridicule and scorn. He, he views himself as Israel's whipping boy. But in the midst of his depression, he cries out to God. Verses 13 and 14. But as for me, my prayer is to you. Deliver me out of the mire. Now he remembers God's kindness in verse 16. He trusts in the multitude of God's tender mercies. And in verse 22, he goes a step further and he calls for God's judgment. By the end of the psalm, David has worked his way out of the depression and he ends up praising God. But I think it's interesting that he had to work his way out of the depression through prayer. Philip Yancey makes an interesting statement. He writes, instinctively, we want to clean up our feelings in our prayers. But perhaps we have it backwards. Perhaps we should strive to take all our worst feelings to God. So many times when we pray, you know, you know God, we, we, re, we rejoice. We're thankful. How many times have you ever gone to God and just said, God, I feel like the pits today. It's awful. And, and just kind of got it all out before the Lord. Just got out your worst feelings before the Lord. I think Philip Yancey and the psalmist here are suggesting that God is not impressed with politically correct prayers. God appreciates it when you just tell him how you feel. He wants you to pour out your emotions. He wants you to get it all out on the table. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And with him, work your way out of the pain until you reach a place of praise. That's what we see happening over and over and over again in the Psalms. Rather than denying his feelings, he's expressing them, but then he's grappling with God until he finally finds release and he puts his trust again in God and he praises God. Prayer becomes a means of getting out of our troubles when we first express it and pour it out to God. Notice one more point about Psalm 69. The verses our New Testament quotes is prophetic of Jesus. Verse 9 applies to Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And verse 21 refers to the cross. 
They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 70 is labeled to bring to remembrance. And interestingly, it is a portion of a previous psalm, Psalm 40. Some have labeled it an emergency prayer or a spiritual SOS. And again, here David cries out for God to deliver him from his enemies. Psalm 71 is grace for the gray-headed. It was written by a Hebrew senior citizen. Here is a heavy metal psalm. For when you get a little older, you get into heavy metal. Teeth of gold, hair of silver, and lead in the seat of your pants. Here's some heavy metal music from a senior citizen in Israel. The psalmist says to God in verse 5, You are my trust from my youth. In other words, he has spent a lifetime now walking with God. There's a Jewish proverb that applies here. It says, For the ignorant, old age is winter. For the learned, old age is a harvest. If you want your senior years to be a harvest and not a winter, then spend the years leading up to it learning how to follow the Lord, trusting the Lord, walking with the Lord, making the Lord your trust from your youth. His old age, though, had made the psalmist feel vulnerable and had felt weaker. And so he prays in verse 9, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. Now that he's feeling a little older, he's a little weaker, he knows that he needs the Lord's protection more than ever. You see, old age brings its aches and its pains and its loss of energy, but it shouldn't rob us of our enthusiasm for life and the opportunities for God that still lay before us. I love what the psalmist pledges himself to do in verses 17 and 18. He says, Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Man, that is fantastic. Rather than back off in his service for God, now that he's older and his time is short, the psalmist wants to turn it up a notch. He wants to share all that he's learned of God and from God with the next generation while he still can. Oh, that every senior citizen would have that kind of attitude. I get so frustrated with some of the older folks. They want to go curl up in the nursing home. We need them. We need them in our lives. Us younger people need them. We need to learn their lessons. We need to learn what God has taught them. We need to learn the wonderful ways that God has worked among them. You remember what Titus says? It says, have the older women teach the younger women. Where are the older women? We need them. We're willing to listen to them if they'll come and teach us. We need that wisdom and that walk with God. Oh, that God would give us some of these senior citizens that would pray Psalm 71. Psalm 72 was dictated by David to his son Solomon. 
And verse 20 tells us the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Psalm 72 were David's final words. They were written, of course, by Solomon, but they were actually David's final words. And you know, you can learn a lot from a person's parting words. They're epithets. As a matter of fact, the late Mel Blanc was the voice of the cartoon character Porky the Pig. And I've always loved the inscription that appears on Mel Blanc's tombstone. It says, that's all, folks. David's final words in Psalm 72 are a prayer for his son and for his successor, Solomon. And to sum up what he says, David asks God to give his son good judgment, to give him a sense of justice. He wants him to be wise and benevolent. He prays that Solomon will reign in peace and that the nations of the earth will submit to him. David asks the Lord to make his son's reign prosperous and to help him leave behind a wonderful legacy. Study Solomon's life and you'll realize how much of David's prayer was really answered. It reminds me that a father's prayers are powerful. I think every dad needs to pray for his kids. Dad, our priority needs to be to pray for our kids. God hears the prayers of a father. And he answers them. And there we have Psalms 42 through 72. And next week we're it's going to be easy. It's going to be just a cake. Well, we've only got a few Psalms next week. What is it? The, the next section is 73 through 89, I believe it is. 